Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Joe Fagan, Distinguished Professor at Texas A&M University. And Prof. Fagan, it's a great, great, great honor to welcome you to the podcast. Your work has been, is, and will continue to be influential for so many of us all over the world. So thank you very much for joining us today. I thought I'd begin by asking if you would share with us the things that are preoccupying you, interesting you, driving you these days. Yes, about six months ago, I published a book called The White Minority Nation, that focuses on the significant decline in U.S. society and racial terms. Uh, U.S. history is often looked at as having reconstruction periods right after the Civil War, civil rights in the 1960s, in a weaker sense, Barack Obama's election. These are positive steps against a long history of foundational and systemic racism. Unfortunately, we're in a reactionary period now against the last little reconstruction of Barack Obama being the first black president in American history. And we've moved very backwards now with Donald Trump probably the first outspoken white supremacist in about 100 years of American history. His main allies are all outspoken uh, white supremacists. Some of them are flat-out Nazis and neo-Nazis. And I wrote the book because I was trying to capture this great shift. It's really based in white American fear of racial change. American society, if you date its founding from Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, we're only about, what's that, four. 417 years old. So compared to European countries, we're a pretty new country. But 12 years after that founding in 1619, a famous year, those Jamestown residents imported about 20 Africans off a Dutch flagged ship to build a slavery system that lasted 246 years. About as long, I think, as any black enslavement has been in any country since 1607. Most Americans are not aware of that being 60% of our history. Most whites see that as a few things back in the distant past and get over it. But the 60% is a dramatic number because it indicates that the real term for racism in this country 
is not prejudice. It's not bias. It's not animus. It needs to be foundational and systemic white racism. If you want to capture that reality completely, for 60% of our history, we had slavery, which built into this society fundamentally. You know, it's not a it's not a cancer, it's not a sickness. It's the foundation. It's the foundation. <laughs> Foundations, as we all know, have legacies, and the legacy of this is Donald Trump, the far right wingers, racist white wingers uh, around him, trying to recover a second presidency for an outspoken defender of that foundational and systemic racism. Now, if you look at American history, uh, white abolitionists and 200,000 black slaves volunteered to fight in the U.S. Army. They call it the Union Army in the history books, but it's really the U.S. Army that overthrew slavery in the 1860 Civil War. That was followed by a period of the first Reconstruction. It was a remarkable period of full racial democracy. Very dramatic. Black people were free. They set up their own families. They were elected to major political positions. Uh, two black men were elected to be U.S. senators from Mississippi. That's never happened since. But we had a reconstruction period of 12 to 15 years. And then the northern whites pulled the U.S. Army out of the south. The slaveholding population, especially their elite, recovered their top position. They were capitalists and slaveholders, of course. And starting about the 1877 election, 1880s, uh, that Reconstruction ended savagely with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist organizations. Jim Crow kicks in at that point, kind of the near slavery, not quite, kind of slavery without the chains, but the near slavery of Jim Crow kicks in from about 1880 until the third Civil Rights Act went into effect in 1969. So almost a century of Jim Crow, you add that in and about 82% of this country's history is extreme racial oppression. It's foundational, it's systemic, and it has huge legacies. The only reason that black Americans today, the main and I would argue only reason that they're so unequal in terms of wealth, black families average something like 10% of the wealth of white families, even though the black family's ancestry goes back farther 
than the average white families because so many whites came in white ethnic migrations from Italy and Ireland in the mid-1850s, 60s. And most of the black population already had ancestry before that. So about 82% of this country's history is extreme racial oppression, foundational and systemic. With these massive legacies today that are demonstrable in a higher poverty rate for black Americans, in the extreme wealth inequality by race in this country, and in the backward movements on even modest little remedial programs like affirmative action. And it never was more than just a kind of moderate liberal answer to a massive problem that deserves foundational reparations. Now we're moving backward even on that promise, the modest promise of the 1960s and 70s, which included affirmative action. We don't enforce those three civil rights laws from the 1960s very aggressively. Housing discrimination is still very widespread in the U.S. And we were supposed to get rid of it with the 1968 Housing Act, that third civil rights act. We never did, never have. The 64 Act was supposed to get rid of employment discrimination. We never came close to that. The 1965 Voting Rights Act made some good progress, but now the Supreme Court and legislatures in the South have rolled that back. So we're still way behind on employment inequality, voting inequality, legal inequality, housing inequality, and those are legacies of 82% of our history that's foundational and systemic racism. So my critique of social science, all of them, is even the more liberal versions of social science research and theory still talks in individualistic terms. Mm-hmm. Prejudice, animus, stereotyping, individual discrimination, and very few Americans know that deep foundational and systemic racism history, and those of us who are teaching that are now being attacked viciously by white supremacists of every kind. They're the ones from distinguished research institutes like the Heritage Foundation or Manhattan Institute, far right wing. But those those people are college educated, some with PhDs. And I still get attacked with phone calls threatening me uh, from the working class groups in Texas and across the South. And the working class groups are like skinheads. Uh, so this country had like three reconstruction periods after the Civil War, 1960s, and in Obama's remarkable election. But then immediately afterwards, we've moved backwards. 
And that's where the U.S. is at. And now we've got lots of right-wingers, moderate conservatives who want to get rid of something they call critical race theory. Most of them have never read any of the original critical race theory, which is in law journals. But they, they now have broadened that term to include any honest teaching of this country's systemic and foundational racism. Well, Joe, that's a, to me, brilliantly accurate picture of U.S. history. I have to say, though, the part that is alarming me is that you personally are receiving threats, threatening phone calls. And I can't help but ask, before we get on to the political and academic issues, how you're coping with those threats. Well, I was fortunate. I grew up in the Deep South, in Houston, in under Jim Crow. I never knew any whites who were anti-racist. I got married at a pretty young age, graduated from Baylor, and then went to Harvard grad school. The only other married couple, at Har I went to Harvard Divinity School first and then shifted over. I got a degree in social ethics there and then shifted over to sociology. But the other married couple in the social ethics program in the early 60s at Harvard was a black couple, Connie and Preston Williams. Preston went on after he got his PhD and headed, headed up the Du Bois Center at Harvard for a couple of decades. And his wife was from Tennessee and attended one of the very few interracial colleges uh, in the South. And they were a little older than us. My wife and I were invited over for dinner. We got to talk with them many evenings. And all I can claim is I'm a good listener. Mm -hmm. And we listened to them describing what it was like growing up and living in Tennessee and in Preston's case in New England and New York as a black person. I had never heard any of that story. The black folks who in Houston I saw were maids and uh, blue-collar male workers working on sewer systems or mowing yards. Right. I never had a talk about how racism affects people in this country, what it is. And Preston and Connie were brilliant teachers. One-on-one, -on -one, personal stories, no way to deny their very realistic stories. And when I switched over to sociology, I was lucky to have two leading sociologists of race in that day, Gordon Allport and then his student, uh, Tom Pettigrew. Mm -hmm. So I got both a in-person lessons from real people, and they're still friends, right, after all these years. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And Preston went on to be a superstar, one of the first black faculty at Harvard, actually. Uh, but yeah. And so with uh, Pars with Parsons, with Pettigrew and Allport, I started reading the social science literature on race and racism. Right. And Pettigrew was probably one of the two or three most critical white scholars on racism in 1963-64 when I started taking his courses. So it was that chance occurrence for this kid from the deep white South, right? Yeah. Encountering two very sharp members of a black couple. And then at the same time, almost going into studying uh, social science research, such as it was on race and racism. And I, to back to your question, talking to Preston and Connie Williams and then studying other black folks' experiences taught me real quick that I was a highly privileged white person because I had never endured any of that. And I guess I got morality at some point there, right? Mm -hmm. I figured I figured if they could, can endure so many centuries of racial oppression that I can play some small role in moving this country toward what the Declaration of Independence actually says in the first sentence. We say all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, that was a lie, but we can make that a reality in this country. So I've committed to that since Connie and Preston told me their stories. Wow. And that's going through your mind as you deal with the threats that you receive. That commitment yes. and the totality of their lives and their marvelous and frightening storytelling. Yeah, you know, over the years, I've gotten numerous phone calls and now social media messages and even a, a death threat letter or two back in the 80s and 90s. But compared to their stories, that's nothing. That's mm -hmm. the minimum, right? If you really want to make this country liberty and justice for all, And I take that seriously. No, greatly appreciated. Um, and Joe, of the many books you've written, it seems as though it's about one a year since the early 70s. And both original research and also textbooks that go through various iterations. The one I last used in teaching actually in a course of, on critical race theory, was one from seven years ago now, Elite White Men Ruling. And one of the things that you and your co-author, and frequently you collaborate with other distinguished scholars, do 
is to explain in that book the interlocking nature of racial, class, and gender privilege. So I wonder if you could explain a wee bit for us the way in which class and gender help to confirm and also are inflected by racial privilege in the United States? Yes, that's a critical question, I think, for all academic disciplines in the Western world, right? Of In the 1990s, probably early 90s, late 80s, uh, I kept looking at how this systemic racism works. I've also done work on systemic sexism. And I've written on urban development and Marxist, kind of neo-Marxist approach to capital capitalism in the housing markets and in the cities. I've worked in all three of those areas mm. off and on. And I started thinking about Who's involved in implementing the oppression systems of race, class, capitalism, gender? Uh, the research literatures that I got in grad school and then worked out of and got to know in social science over six decades now, even the best of that literature focuses on the implementers at the middle and lower levels. You know, who's responsible for implementing racial discrimination, targeting Americans of color? All the studies are about the role of middle class occasionally upper middle class, working, and especially working class whites. You know, if you look at that literature, including the discussions now in the media and in our election, right, the focus is on working class whites as the basis of the Republican parties. That's exaggerated, but... Uh, and... I guess late 80s, early 90s, it started occurring to me, what about the people at the top? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I started looking for studies of the elite white men in the capitalistic system. Uh, there's some pretty good sociologists who focus on those top capitalists as capitalists. Uh, look at the class structure. They get some attention. But if you look in gender studies, they get none. The elite white men get no attention. And in my main field, systemic and foundational racism, they only get covered in vague language, vague concepts. Occasionally, they're called elites, right? But the fact that they're capitalistic, that they're white, racist, and that they're male, which they're all three at once, obviously, never gets theorized, never gets focused on. And to my knowledge, there are only two books that call them out as elite white men and focus on them with research. 
And I did both of them with a junior collie. Uh, first one is White Men on Grace. I don't know whether you've seen that one or not. No, I haven't, I must admit. Beacon Press did it. I was lucky. I had a friend at Elite Liberal Arts College who was teaching her first course, I think, on race. And she had gotten something like a $1,000 grant. This tells you what kind of a college it was to teach this course and to get her students involved in some real learning about race. And she asked me, what kind of project should I get them to do? And I said, well, you know, we've got all these studies of the racial views of whites, but they're working class and no higher. Why don't you have your students interview their parents and then their friends of their parents? Mm -hmm. Of now, these are kids at a very elite school. Okay, so I had them interview uh, as part of her course. She helped with this, of course. Uh, elite white men, starting with their families, and I knew that would be biased sample. So I also had her ask them, well. Now go and interview the friends of your parents so you have no direct connection. And they interviewed about 100 elite white men. The chairman of Goldman Sachs, for example, is in my sample. Nobody else has ever done that. Mm -hmm. And it was only luck that I could do that. So I got these in-depth interviews from elite white men and wrote a book about their views on racial matters. And then in the one you referenced with Kimberly Ducey, who's my hmm. young Canadian, she's a Canadian, a young Canadian professor. Uh, and that's when we started talking about this uh, triple helix. Yes, a metaphor. You draw the triple helix in the book. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot on the double helix of the DNA in human cells. And it occurred to me one day, there's this triple helix when you're talking about how systemic racism works. It It's never by itself. It's always intertwined with class slash capitalism and with the gendered race sexism. Mm. Because at the very top of this society and European societies too, uh, I don't know the statistics for the European societies, but the one, this, the top CEOs, Fortune 500, 91% are elite white men. Only 9% are white women and three or four people of color. Something in that range. It shifts every year. So even in 2024, we're talking somewhere around 90% of the elite white men in the capitalistic system. The elite capitalists, right, are also white and male. 
And it's amazing, my my Marxist friends who write a lot about capitalists at the top, right, never seemed to think that it matters that they're also white and male, right? They know their capitalistic framing of the world and commitments shape their behavior. No problem with that. But when I keep insisting, but they're also the inventors of the racist system and they've created the white racial framing everybody buys into. You don't think that affects their behavior too, in addition to them being good capitalists? And then you put gender into that picture you know, we've got 417 years of oppressing women, too. And the key players in that, as the current Supreme Court demonstrates on gender matters, are the recent Alabama Supreme Court top justice demonstrates when women are still part of that oppression from a late white man. Uh, amazingly so when you consider they're 52% of the population. I mean, Americans of color are still only about, what, 40% of the population. But women collectively are something like 52% of the population. And you still have about 90% of the ruling elite in government you know, in the capitalistic system, then most of the educational system is elite white men like me. Uh, so I spent time doing those two books just to kind of get them into this discussion. It's very hard. People still want to talk about prejudice and bias and this nonsense about implicit bias. Really? You know, so, major Harvard faculty working on implicit bias. Now, that's fine. I don't have any trouble with that concept. But explicit bias is far more serious <laughs> and quite obvious. And you I know, guess, ever since Gordon Allport taught me about that, yeah, you know, it's never gone away. It's very open. Um, and, and I guess part of the difficulty is that this often gets mired in a notion of attitudes or bad apples and so on, instead of institutionalized racism that, as you say, is cooked into the nature of the country and the way in which that repeats and repeats. I'm reminded of Laura Nader, the anthropologist, saying in the early 70s that it was necessary for ethnographers to study up not just to study sideways or in inverted commas down. And I do think that although there is, as you indicate, a body of studies of elites, much of it done in Texas uh, over the years, in the United States and elsewhere, that body of knowledge doesn't focus in the way that you've shown on gender and race as much as it does on things like interlocking directorates and university experiences to account for this parthenogenesis of what is white male privilege. But one thing uh, that 
is important, I think, in the focus on working class prejudice or let's not use prejudice, working class racism, is that clearly there is something in what Trump and Steve Bannon and their allies say that does appeal to millions of white Americans for whom, as far as they're concerned, the system doesn't work, who have faith in capitalism, but who feel as though they have been let down by their version of elites and by elements like globalization and who have found some sort of refuge or justification ideologically in various forms of religion and racism. Is that fair fair to say, or would you need to correct me on something? Yeah, that that gets us partly there. Uh, The thing I would add, and, and I think is central, to understanding the white working class since I grew up in it. Yeah. You know, my granddad was a rural mail carrier. Right. uh, And had moved in a wagon from Mississippi from very, very poor farming background. Right. Uh, Anyway, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois crafted a brilliant concept in his famous book in the 1930s called Black Reconstruction. And his idea was the public and psychological wage of whiteness. And his point was that at that point in time, the black working class the enslaved population who had been semi-freed, right, Jim Crow, and the white working class in the southern states especially, shared an obvious common economic interest at overthrowing the capitalist class with a workers' movement that was biracial, interracial workers' movement. And there were some movements in the South called the Farmers' Alliances, where working class, white farmers, low income, moderate income, and black farmers, who were even poorer, had a common interest against the railroads, the grain combines, the big farm corporations. And they started working together in Farmers' Alliances. But the white elite... That white capitalistic elite descended from recently from slaveholders. They were either slaveholders or their children. Crafted, Du Bois points out, a con for working class white people. It's a con game. Trump's very good at it. It's still around. But it was developed by the white elite this white male elite in from somewhere around the 1880s until the civil rights movement of the 60s, and then it keeps on going in various forms. And Du Bois says 
He's looking at Black Reconstruction. Uh, during Reconstruction, working-class white Confederate soldiers who came back home and were desperate, right, often worked with working-class freed slaves to elect governments that were biracial in the old Confederacy, and those legislatures started passing laws creating public education, funding schools for the first time in Southern history. They were interracial legislatures. It was temporary because the so-called redemption comes in, and as I said before, in about 15 years. And it starts with that con. The Southern elite starts preaching, literally, mm. to the white working classes that you don't want to uh, mix with these N-words. They're very brutal, blatant, racist framing. Because we'll give you white privilege if you don't. So as Du Bois points out, what the white elite sold to the white working class was the public and psychological wage of whiteness. That's what we whites got, working class whites. We got this privilege of being white, which meant we had whites-only swimming pools. Black people had to step off the sidewalk when we walked by. We could call them the N-word all we wanted. If we were small business people, we could discriminate against them. We had white privilege, and what we gave up for this, of course, and that's why it's a con. And I've never figured, quite figured out why we whites are so stupid to take that con. But if white, whites had stayed working together with working class blacks who had just been freed from slavery, they could have forced that white elite to provide better economic and living conditions and general social commissions and schools and, you know, what, what we call in this country socialism, you know, democratic uh, social programs. So what working class whites gave up and are still giving up is sharply improved health, education, family, economic conditions in return for that kind of vague and sometimes not so vague, right, white privilege. You can get a little better job than black people can. You're less likely to be discriminated against for these working class jobs than black working class. You can live in whites only uh, suburbs if you can afford it, right? Yeah. Uh, you can go to uh, whites-only schools, which are better schools. Just forget the race. They're just better schools, better funded. And so whites, since the end of slavery, have, have increasingly bought that con. It is astonishing that any white working-class person right now would support Trump because he's constantly saying he's going to get rid of the Social Security. He's going to make Medicare a private program. He's going to get rid of as much of this social 
restrictions on capital, right? It says they can't pollute your river and they can't pollute your water system. He's going to get rid of all of that, he and his minions. And white people, 60% of us anyway, buy that con. That's astonishing when you think about the stupidity of it. But it's been going on since the first Reconstruction. And it's been used every time white and black working class get together. That con of white privilege and white superiority and racial superiority, where they're going to marry your daughter's stuff, uh, instead of the collusion white and black workers had for brief periods. You know, anybody, that's like, if you know the history of what happened in the South during those 15 Reconstruction years, those integrated legislatures, so mostly white and black, mostly working class, lower middle class folks, got public education into many areas of the South for the first time. They also got rid of imprisonment for debt, those legislatures. Uh, they got rid of dueling. A lot of reforms during that 12, 15-year period, which were rolled back once the slaveholding elite came back in in the late 1870s, 1880s. And that's what happened in the 60s. This country made tremendous progress in desegregation of the schools, housing, the U.S. Congress in the 60s and 70s. And then Reagan comes in in 1981 and starts rolling that back, using the con again, as well as some black Uncle Tom's. You know, Clarence Thomas, he puts Clarence, the young Clarence Thomas at the head of the U.S. Equal Employment and Opportunity Commission with the mandate to kill it. And then when he comes up for Supreme Court Justice and Biden, of all people, is head of that Senate committee, the white liberals are so afraid of supporting the black woman, right? Who who told an honest uh, set of experiences with his sexual harassment? Those white liberals were afraid to turn down a black reactionary who had just rolled back a lot of LBJ's civil rights revolution in the 60s or was in the process of doing it. Anyway, I just can't believe we keep buying the con. No, I think you you make the point extremely well and powerfully. And uh, really, that moment with the Anita Hill accusations against Clarence Thomas is when... Biden, but also some of the probably serial sexual harassers within the Senate and on the Justice Committee. And I'm not suggesting Biden 
was or is one of those, got together in a good old boy way that was both frightened of being called racist, but also was potentially itself vulnerable, many members of the Judiciary Committee, to the sorts of accusations that Professor Hill made. And that is also, along with the Democrats, failing to legislate when they had majorities in both houses on abortion, what ultimately leads us to much of the obsession with reproductive politics that drives the coalition that is the contemporary Republican Party. Uh, Biden has blood on his hands. And uh, that's something that the Democratic coalition has never been prepared to confront. Of course, other elements in this story you tell are the Southern strategy adopted by Nixon, which was very much a way of attracting votes against the civil rights agenda of Johnson, and then this Sunbelt strategy of Reagan. And really the Republican Party has built itself on those elements. But I did want to tease out, if I could, a little bit more of religion. Uh, As you said, you went to Baylor University, a very distinguished religious uh, Christian university in the South, and you also studied divinity matters when first you went to Harvard, Now, I don't know what it was like then, but Baylor is often thought of today as an extremely conservative tertiary institution. And given that you grew up in the South and were imbued with a Christian ethos, did that Christian ethos help you to appreciate the stories that uh, you were told around the Williams family table when you went to Harvard, a sense of the loving, service-oriented and radical elements in Christianity versus the reactionary ones? Yeah, there's kind of a long discussion there because... In some ways, Baylor is very liberal compared to the 1960s. I mean, when I went to Baylor from 1956 to 1960, all the students, with one or two exceptions, were white. All. Uh, There was one... Asian disabled guy who was the mascot of the football team. The football team, the basketball team, all the sports teams are pretty much white men, young white men. All the foot, you can imagine American football in the 60s uh, was still pretty much all the major universities. You know, Southern Methodist, Texas Christian, University of Texas, Texas A&M, uh, Rice, football teams were white men. That's it. So, and Baylor had produced the, probably the superstar, the greatest superstar black female basketball player. And she's gay, lesbian. Mm-hmm. Uh, in what, the last six, 
eight years. So, yeah, Baylor's still fairly conservative if you compare it with uh, a secular public university like University of Texas or University of Michigan or UCR. Uh, you know, it still has social, it still has religious studies as one of its programs, but many of its faculty are pretty liberal politically. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I've given lectures there. And certainly in the social sciences, they're pretty liberal on racial matters, for example, on religion. Uh, when I went there, chapel was mandatory. You, you know, students had to go to chapel. And uh, you know, there's kind of a long history here. We probably don't want to get into it. But the Southern Baptist Convention was pretty conservative. But it suddenly got a lot more conservative. There was a revolution within the Southern Baptist Convention where what I would call moderate conservatives, moderate Republicans, really don't exist anymore, right? Uh, were the administrators across the South in Southern Baptist churches, in the states. By today's standard, they were pretty moderate. And there's a right-wing revolution within the Southern Baptist Convention that suddenly made it much more fundamentalist, much more tying racism and political extremism with religion. Uh, the kind of connection that you see today in, in like white Baptists didn't exist in such a massive way that it exists today. And I have friends in the, the three main Southern Baptist seminaries across the South uh, had moderately, uh, moderate uh, heads of those seminaries and moderate faculty. And then there's a suddenly right-wing overtaking of the Southern Baptist Convention that sho shoves it sharply to the right. Uh, so it is actually more conservative, more reactionary. They got rid of a lot of moderate churches. Uh, there are Southern Baptist churches that have women ministers. And they, what, in the last few years, forced those out of the Southern Baptist Convention? And I'm talking like a thousand churches where women had moved up into the top pastor. So anyway, that's another whole story about Southern Baptists are not the same as they were. In some ways, they were worse. Like in, when I went to Baylor, it was a racist system. Uh, but now they're worse because they're Trumpites, right? Yeah, yeah. This political extremism, which didn't exist even in Texas in those days. I mean, we produced Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yes. You have to remember. Now, he's a racist senator, overtly racist senator, but he started out teaching in a Mexican-American school out of a second-tier public university in Texas. 
We went to a second tier public university in Texas, got an education degree, taught at a Mexican-American school, a poor one. So that's where he got his values, right? When he had the chance to expand all those social programs. Because he knew what it was like to be poor. But when he became senator, you had to you had to buy into this white racist Southern Senate thing. But once he was free of that and took over as president after Jack Kennedy was shot, of all the presidents in American history to this present day, he developed more left type social programs, building hospitals. We didn't have a massive hospital, public hospital system until he helped build it. Public school system, universities and colleges, those three civil rights acts. Uh, you go to the LBJ school at UT Austin and the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Museum, you can't believe how many of these Liberal social programs were started under him. So anyway, that's another story. No, I appreciate oh. your sharing. Um, Prof. Joe, we, we've, I've got just two more questions for you, if I may. And then okay. I'd, I'd like to throw it to you to add anything you wish to what we've discussed. Does that sound all right? As a sure. word. So my first question is, I hear in your voice, I think, in your perspective, from your perspective, both a faith in the social sciences and a disappointment in the social sciences. Have I got that right? And could you elaborate a bit? Yes, I think that's exactly right. There. And there is a long tradition in social science, which actually starts with black sociologists in the late 1880s and 90s. And some of the early white social scientists were liberal reformers in the progressive movements. And some women, Jane Addams, who who really was a key player in developing social work. And she gets prominent display as a leading woman thinker and activist in social work, but she also published, she and her students and allies, women, at the uh, immigrant facility in Chicago, published, what, 30 articles in the first sociology journal, American Journal of Sociology. They weren't just social workers. Uh, She developed She's one of the founders of, of U.S. sociology with Du Bois. And she actually actually fostered and helped Du Bois as a young scholar. Uh, you know, I gave my presidential address in the year 2000, if you want to see that whole argument. But the origins of sociology are in these black, female, and some very liberal white social scientists. So we've got that heritage, right? And that legacy. Uh, and that's what I was trying to recall 
in my 2000 presidential address. And since then, we've had a whole, whole different crew of presidents. They're mostly women and people of color since I was before me. They're mostly white men, men including me. Uh, so sociology, uh, the point I made in that presidential address, sociology has this deep liberal, left-leaning, progressive, positive history that we need to recall. And it's inspirational for me to look at those folks. Uh, on the other hand, we got way off track right after World War II, I think, when the federal government came with fistfuls of money for academics. You know, in the immediate post-war period, the U.S. was, what, the only Western country that wasn't substantially destroyed by the war. And we had fistfuls of money being shoved at all hard sciences, humanities, sociology in the late 40s and early 50s. And some of the white male sociologists like Robert K. Merton and Sam Stauffer, who had played critical roles in quantitative analysis during the war, Stauffer especially, uh, started buying into a hyper-quantitative empirical sociology that the only kind of data to be considered is surveys and then you know I, that's what i got i was i was a top statistician in my class of 30 at harvard phd program believe it or not um yeah statistics comes in with a bang and people start the data they we start looking at is survey data and that's a severe handicap when you do that because as you know, as well as I do, you can't get very deep into any issue with 60-second questions and 60-second answers. I mean, it's useful to a point. I can't, you know, my first five or six articles were in, you know, I got basically got tenure doing survey analysis. Uh, but the farther I got into analyzing surveys, the more I started thinking about the deeper questions. You know, for example, that first paper I did with Allport, like as a green first year sociology PhD student, I did a survey of Southern Baptists with the help of my mother-in-law across Oklahoma and Texas using scales that had been developed E-scale, uh, the anti-Negro scale, it was called, using questions from those to see what relationship I got to questions I was helping Allport do. Uh, he very interested in measuring the different kinds of religious orientation, intrinsic and extrinsic religion. I don't know whether you ever encountered that discussion, mm -hmm. but I helped him craft survey items to measure were, whether religious people were intrinsically in kind, that is, they stress spirituality, or extrinsically religious, which means they went to church to sell real estate or to sell insurance, 
or to make friends, right? And uh, so I looked at those scales coming out of the authoritarian personality and Gunnar Myrdal in the war period. You know, here I'm in 1963, looking at the correlation between intrinsic, extrinsic, and whether people were more or less racist, depending on their religious orientation. Uh, Alpert was very interested in that and helped help fund, help fund the screen sociology mm-hmm. student. And I found a, a modest correlation. And these are Southern Baptists, so intrinsically oriented Southern Baptists who went went to church for the spiritual reasons, to, for prayer, mm-hmm. connecting with God, tended to be somewhat less racist on that anti-Negro scale, on the race scales. And those who talked more about making friends at church and kind of social and were somewhat more racist on those little surveys. But of course, again, that's pretty superficial. But I started thinking, what does this mean? It took me several years to do that. But and so I started moving out of quantitative and survey into in-depth interviewing, uh, qualitative studies of various kinds, newspaper analysis, uh, and so. I, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but you can see these two strands of sociology methodologically tend to fit into two ways of looking at the world. Right. So on the one hand, sociology has a deeper, longer critical tradition in the U.S. than any other social science, that's for sure. Mm. Uh since we were founded by what the first black PhD from Harvard, Du Bois, uh, in in a very real sense, and by Jane Adams, were two of the very earliest founders of Western of U.S. sociology. On the other hand, we after the war, we st- started getting these grants, big grants, to do surveys, and again, you can see that triple helix elite. Right, is not too worried about us doing surveys. But if you start digging below the surface of the surveys, whether it's race, class, or gender, that's when they get nervous. And I know, because of the 1970s, one of my grad students, we kept applying to do survey surveys on gender discrimination faced by women from some of the big grant agents. Even that was too far. I never got, even though I had a record of grants and statistics and quantitative, I never got that grant. Uh, And in recent years, I've had a couple of female grad students where we just went in and got got women to keep diaries of everyday incidents of sexism. And we're working on a book on that right now. But so it's kind of those two. Yeah, I'm inspired by a lot of sociologists or gutsy people like Bill Domhoff, who's done all this great research on that capitalist class, mm-hmm. or C. Wright Mills, uh, who pioneered 
And he said, I'm not a Marxist, but he was. <laughs> you know, that's, that's an inspiring tradition of gutsy people. And on the other hand, you've got this quantitative thing, which we, we've been, again, we sold our souls for, you know, for grants and jobs. Uh, and it makes even more sense for the younger sociologists coming out now. You try to do an ethnographic study on like the triple helix and you won't get a job coming out of a graduate program. In fact, you probably won't get a degree. Um, I'm exaggerating because there are there's a a group of fairly radical sociologists in most departments, but it's small. Um, oh, absolutely. And uh, if we look back at some of the shadow of Parsonian functionalism, right? Uh, that was cast mm -hmm. uh, in a way that also affected areas like area studies and led to a mythic notion of U.S. society as a model for what the rest of the world should be and a parthenogenetic replication of white male power that uh, became a norm was meant to be, A, an accurate description, but B, a good prescription. Yeah, Parsons was my theory professor at Harvard in two major courses. And Robert Bello, I had four or five courses from him. He was Parsons, you know, brilliant young star. He got full professor at Harvard at age 31. That doesn't happen very often. But Bella became a much more interesting researcher, I think. Yeah, he started doing the more interested in qualitative work. And when the classes I had, he was having me read uh, European philosophers. He was much broader than Parsons. But yeah. Parsons was much broader than he's portrayed. You know, there's this uh, stereotype of him. You know, I was sitting in his classes when people were writing articles. Well, Parsons has no theory of change. And he was lecturing every day on a theory of change. <laughs> different, you know, and that he, his theory of change was all this differentiation. No, he, I did a paper for him on de-differentiation. Now, mm -hmm. evolution can go backwards. And he loved it. You know, Peter, you remember Peter the Great, I don't know if you know history, Peter the Great uh, and the previous czar had started moving handicraft production, right, out of the home and out of small into factory-type settings. And then Peter decided to roll it backwards and put it back, the production back into the homes. And this the same people are out there saying, well, Parsons only has this one way he doesn't have a real theory of change. You know, they got stuck on a caricature of Parsons. I mean, yeah, he, you know, he helped bring some Nazi, you know, former Nazis over after the war mm -hmm. to Harvard. But at the same time, he published uh, one of the first books on discrimination faced by 
Black Americans, the Negro American collection mm. with an African American scholar. Uh, yeah, somebody needs to do a real, he's a complex, he was a very oh. complex guy. Point taken, and I'm sure I was adding to the stereotype. I guess part of my difficulty with that history of functionalism is the way in which I think quite radical thinkers like Weber and Durkheim are enlisted and Zimmel to a lesser extent as part of a desire to attack Marxism. Yeah. And of course, that's the whole ethos of that uh, late 40s, 50s, early 60s period. Um, and you're right, Pars Parsons is more than half that. But he was also smart enough Mm -hmm. We're talking now about 63, 64, mm. to know the civil rights movement was hitting this society with a bang. And to work with black, the few black sociologists around. Yeah. And to take it seriously, the civil rights movement, right. take it seriously. Uh, and it's the same Parsons, you know, it's like... Mm. And then he's a he's an avid smoker, so unfortunately he didn't live to what about seventy years old, late sixties. He's gone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I started my first class I had with him was an undergraduate class on religion, coming you know coming out of my divinity school that first year. And, of course, listening to him talk about religion with the AGIL and the, the jargon that he had developed, he was way over the head of everybody in the class, including the few grad students in it. Well, I know I think that that is, as you say, it is time to reconsider that contribution. No question. So, Prof, I, my last question is one to which... I some know a bit of the answer because you told me in an email, but I wonder if you could explain to our listeners, and that is what's next for Joe Fagan? I think you've only 